This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you had a good lunch and whatever else you did over the break. Um, Let's bow our heads for prayer as we begin our next presentation. (coughs) Father in heaven, Lord, we pause to thank you for this day, for the blessing of life, health, and strength as we meditate for a few moments on this this subject of a hill to die on. I pray, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would impress upon us um, the importance of our lives and where we stand in history. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so our first presentation, we looked at broad themes of the Reformation. The second one, we looked at faith and formulas, which was different, um, the progression of um, the belief on how we're saved through the Reformation and where we stand today. This one is called a hill worth dying on. You know, when we think of the Reformers, what, what imagery often comes to mind? It's imagery of people who actually gave their life for something. They, they may have lived and then their life was cut short because of the stands that they took. And so the question for us today is, you know, what stands do we or will we have to take and what are we prepared to stand for something at the cost of something very precious, even be it our life? You know, when we think back onto some of the past and the history, we, we, we've talked about John Wycliffe a couple of times already, but I talk about him again. Welcome to Lutterworth, the workplace of John Wycliffe. Because there's a certain qu- there's a quotation that he gave um, that I believe stands out as kind of like a, a foundational principle that he lived by and many reformers after him lived by. As I mentioned earlier, you can go visit his church. If you do go, go between the times of 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. and it's always open every day. And uh, they you can just walk in and it's open. Now, he was once asked if he would um, renounce. And there was one time where he was on his, his, his bed and a room filled with all these other papists and papal people. And they wanted to get him to admit that he was wrong or to change his mind. And there's a quotation that he gave that kind of really sums up in some ways the essence of Protestantism. Where he said these words. He said... With whom think ye, sorry, with whom think you, he finally said, are you contending? With an old man on the brink of the grave. Then he said, no. With truth. Truth that is stronger than you and truth that will what? Overcome you. I mean, this was a, this is kind of the principle that many reformers live by. And I believe the early Adventists lived by. And I believe the Adventist church and God's people at the end of time will also have to live by this principle. Who do you think you're battling with? Just me? Just an individual? He said, do you think you're just battling with an old man with gray hairs on the brink of a grave? No. He said, you're battling with truth. It's something bigger than me. It's something stronger than just me. And you're battling with that. And this truth is stronger than you. And one day is going to overcome you as well. You see, the lives that we live, we need to live a life that's kind of, we live for a bigger cause than just what we are. There's something bigger than the individual, and there's something bigger than the church. He recognized it wasn't just him as an individual. There's something bigger out there. There was a bigger issue at play. And so the issue is on his day, there was an issue of national rights. I mentioned it in our presentation this morning. England was paying money to the Pope or to, or to the Vatican. It was a thousand crowns a year. And he said, no, we as a sovereign country should not be paying money to another sovereign country for what? And so they challenged that. And that was a, a huge issue that he stood for. He also stood for justification by faith. And he also believed that the Bible should be in the language of the common people. Many of us would look at those things today and say, well, that's fairly standard. But in an age where nations didn't have a right to exist unless they had the Pope's blessing. You've heard the story of the German king, uh, Gregory, I forget his name exactly. Gregory, who wasn't going along with everything the Pope wanted him to do. And so the Pope just put the whole country of Germany under, under basically a papal ban. He said, okay, until you listen to me, 
No one in your country can get married. No one in your country can have a funeral. No one in your whole country can get baptized as a baby. The church is shut. And soon, the people said to the king, you better sort out whatever differences you've got. Because in the Catholic belief, if you have a baby and they were born but not baptized and then they die, now we think today, well, we just bury them and pray the Lord will resurrect them. In the Catholic belief, if, they're, if they die before they're baptized, which frequently happened in medieval times, the child goes straight to hell. So it was a big issue. Like, and you can't get married outside of the physical structure of the church. You know, as Adventists today, we may have a wedding on the beach or a wedding on the... No, 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 you can't do that. Catholic belief in the 1500s, you have to get married in the physical church by the priest. And so when the Pope says you can't have weddings, you can't have baptisms, and you can't have funerals, like those three institutions of life shut the whole country down. And so they were able to control countries by controlling the church. And so John Wycliffe was like, no, 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 there, there, there's something wrong here. And so he was the first one that stood up for national rights. And, and, and that's a common theme you see through some of the Reformation stories where Martin Luther was kind of arguing for a stronger Germany as opposed to Germany listening to everything the Pope told them. Justification by faith, as I mentioned earlier, and the Bible in the language of the common people. This is another man here. Anyone recognize this man or this place? Huss. That is in the city of Prague. It's a beautiful city if you ever get a chance to go. Uh, one of my favorite cities. Really, really picturesque and really just a nice vibe in the city. Um, you know, little cafe shops and people playing music and drawing pictures and very artistic place. That's the old town square. And they've got a, I kind of like Czech Republic because they, they really do like their reformers. There's some countries, particularly like in England, where the English people really have no idea. You drive to Lutzowa, they have no idea who John Wycliffe is, and it's pretty sad. Whereas I do like the fact that in Czech Republic, they, they do see their reformers as national heroes from the past. And so there's a big statue there in the old town square, and you can visit the, um, that's the Bethlehem Chapel. Was a, he was a pastor there at the Bethlehem Chapel. Um, and one of the big things he he stood for, when he was the pastor of the Bethlehem Chapel, a key thing, he actually inherited it from the pastor before him. The pastor before him said, I want the Bible to be taught in this chapel in the local language. That's a big thing. And so when John Huss took over pastoring in this church, <coughs> he was inheriting a heritage where the Bible was taught in the language of the common people. And so that was one of the things he stood for. He also stood for many of the stances that John Wycliffe stood for. And this is kind of how you have some of the synergy of the Reformation. John Wycliffe was in England, and he was a reformer there. And then the Princess of England uh, was from Bohemia, or Czech Republic. And so she came in contact with John Wycliffe's writings. And then through a couple of relationships, some of those writings made their way to the Czech Republic. And so then what started in England carried on in the Czech Republic, or at the time it was called Bohemia, and the Reformation went from one country to another. And so these guys started a period of reform there in the Czech Republic. You know how old they were? To me, this is a lesson. This is generation of what? Youth for Christ. He took over this church here, which was one of the premier churches in the city of Prague, capital city. He was the at the age of, now I know to some of you this may sound old, but in the grand scheme of things, I think it's quite young. He was the age of 31. Now to me, that's pretty young when it comes to being a pastor of like the biggest church in the city. I don't know about what cities you come from and what conferences you come to, you come from in Adventism, but where I come from, the biggest church in the conference never gets a pastor who's 31 years old. They get the guy who's like, you know, one step from retirement. And, and, but 31, biggest church in the city, and he's championing the cause of John Wycliffe before him. He's championing the cause of the Bible and the language of the people. Um, but it got him, he got him in trouble. And uh, he got summoned to the city of Constance. The city of Constance had a council. It's called the Council of Constance. It started in 1415. And he was summoned to Constance, but he was told or when he went there, he would have the safe protection of the emperor. So the emperor's over the whole area, the Holy Roman Emperor. And he said, here's your safe conduct. You can travel to Constance and no one is going to kill you. No one's going to hurt you. You have safe passage. 
So he traveled there to um, Constance. His friends didn't want him to go. They said, if you go, you're going to die. He said, no, no, the, you know, the emperor's given me safe conduct, but either way, I'm going to go, whether, you know, whether I'm supposed to or not. So he travels to Constance, and as soon as he got there, he arrived in Constance, his travel of safe passage from the emperor meant nothing, and he was put straight in prison. You know what the irony is, or kind of the, the, the quirk on history, is that that same emperor got dethroned and was put in prison later on himself. So that served him right. The city of Constance, if you've ever been there, you may recognize this uh, statue. It's a statue of a uh, rather curvy and scantily clad woman, and it kind of is illustrating the colorful history of the city. Um, while the Council of Constance was on, the population swelled from about 10,000 to about 40,000, and of that, about 1,500 women of circumstance, shall I say, moved into the city and, you know, lets you know that they weren't all living by their vows. And so in her hand, in one of her hands, she holds the emperor, and in the other hand, she's holding the pope. Very interesting artistic imagery where you've essentially got a prostitute holding the pope and the emperor in one hand. Um, so, uh, what's his name? Huss is in prison, and then Jerome said, if Huss is in prison, I'm going to go to his help. So Jerome then leaves Prague and goes to Constance. And when he gets to Constance, he realizes there's nothing he can do to help um, um, Huss out. Huss is in prison, there's nothing he can do. So he returns to Prague. But on his way back to Prague, Jerome got apprehended, and then he gets thrown in prison as well. And so you've got two of these reformers from Czech Republic. They're both there in prison, Huss and Jerome. And they had a trial in this church. If you've been to Constance, it's called the Munster. And we know exactly where John Huss stood. Exactly. He was standing by row 24 in the aisle. That's where he stood during his trial. That's where he had to answer his questions, and that's where he made a defense of his faith. So John Huss was there in this building. He was, gave a defense of his faith. And it's interesting. Something happened in this building that really helped Martin Luther out about 100 years later. Because when he was in his trial, he was basically having to give a defense, and he made a point. He said, I traveled here to Constance under the protection of Emperor Sigismund. Emperor Sigismund was sat, I don't know, over there. And when he sat there and held up, I don't know if he held up his, his safe conduct passage, everyone in the room looked at Emperor Sigismund. The history account of that day or that event say that Sigismund blushed a crimson red. He's embarrassed. This guy came under your protection and you threw him in prison. Later on, in 1520 or 1521, when Martin Luther was in a similar position and he was at a council and there were some people that said, listen, what are we what, why are we discussing with Martin Luther? Let's just throw Martin Luther in prison. The emperor of the time said, no, I do not want to blush like Sigismund blushed. And so a little bit of personal pride from this situation kept Martin Luther alive, whereas other people would have. The slide's not so clear. That's a picture of inside the church. And when Huss was getting ready to be killed, he was asked to renounce some things or renounce his faith. And he said these words. He said, what error, said Huss, shall I renounce? I know myself guilty of none. I call God to witness that all I have written and preached has been with the view of rescuing souls from sin and perdition, and therefore, most joyfully, will I confirm with my blood the truth which I have written and preached. You've got John Wycliffe saying, listen, you're battling with truth, truth that's stronger than you. You've got John Huss saying, what error shall I renounce? I know myself guilty of none. These men, you see, they understood the difference between what was a real issue and what was something that wasn't. And they said, that thing, but this thing we are going to stand on and we're not going to budge on and we're not going to bend on. You can go in Constance to the exact spot. They believe it was right there where that rock is, where Jerome was killed and also later on, sorry, Huss was killed and also later on where Jerome was killed. History tells us that as they were burning, he started to sing a song. When the flames kindled about him, he began to sing, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And so continued until his voice was silenced forever. How do you have a faith where you're dying and singing a hymn while you're being burned? 
Like sometimes today in church, we get offended over such silly things. Someone didn't say something right. You know? Someone didn't address me with the right title. Or whatever. At the end of the day, many of these things are frivolous things. Here you got people dying singing hymns. Recognizing they're standing for something that's bigger than, than, um, than their life itself. Ellen White writes on, she says, both bore themselves with a constant mind, uh, with constant mind when their last hour approached. They prepared for the fire as if they were going to a marriage feast. They uttered no cry of pain. When the flames arose, they began to sing hymns, and scarce could the vehemency of the fire stop their singing. The seminar is entitled The Hill to Die On. What issues, these are one of the issues they stood for, was the Bible and the language of the common people. What issues do we have a, as a church have to stand for today? What issues do we stand for in our local church? Or do we make issues of things that shouldn't be issues? Martin Luther was born in 1494. His dad was a miner. He came from a poor family. That's his birth house. That's the city of Wittenberg or Wittenberg. Excuse me. Um, that's the church he nailed the thesis to, this one here, the tower. The church he preached in most of the time was that one there. And his house is just about there. Um, Martin Luther was standing for the belief that he often phrased, the just shall live by faith. He was denounced by the Pope. Um, this spot here, if you've been to uh, Wittenberg, this spot here, this is not the original tree, but it's a tree planted in the same spot um, where he burned the papal bull that denounced him. You know, he had a little bit, as I said earlier, he had a little bit of drama in him as well. He had a crowd gathered around, lit the, lit the papal bull, and burned it in the presence of other people. And it was somewhere around where that tree is. He was making a stand. Like sometimes people today say, well, are these people just kind of arrogant? Are these people just kind of, you know, picky? What were they making stands for? What were the issues that they were standing on? Martin Luther was standing for the Bible in the language of the common people. He was arguing for justification by faith alone as opposed to the sacraments. These are what he was standing on. Now, what about some of the other reformers? Have you heard of Thomas Cranmer? Maybe. Thomas Cranmer, you know, it's fine. I lived in my house for about four years until I realized that Thomas Cranmer was born literally five miles from where I lived. So I got on a car, drove there, I was like, ah, they even got him on the village sign. Birthplace of Thomas Cranmer, 1489 to 1556, Archbishop of Canterbury. He is the most high-profile person that uh, Mary Stuart, Queen Mary, killed. She's often referred to as Bloody Queen Mary because she killed about 280 Protestants during her time as queen. And Ashlockton, or Aslockton, is the birthplace of Thomas Cranmer. Now, what was the issue that Thomas Cranmer stood for. Why did he die? Like, the side story is, and you've, you've got the, the big reason in the side story. The side story is, Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know why he was made the Archbishop of Canterbury? King Henry wanted to divorce his wife, right? What was his wife's name? Catherine, thank you. Catherine of He wanted to divorce Catherine and marry Anne. But the Pope said he couldn't. And the reason why the Pope said he couldn't was basically because Catherine was like, you know, related to him or something in some way. So we didn't want to embarrass her, even though he had authorized many of the kings to get divorced. He just didn't do this one. And so the king was kind of annoyed, like, well, you're doing all these other divorces. Why aren't you doing mine? So the king <coughs> found someone that would agree with his divorce. On this point, Cranmer was wrong, I would probably say, though it's kind of nuance of history. Thomas Cranmer authorized the king's divorce, so the king made him the Archbishop of Canterbury, so he could get a divorce. Um, the argument was that the king should never have been married to her in the first place, because she had already been married to his brother. So Catherine of Aragon married the king's brother, the king's brother died, and then the king married her. And so some people said, well, she shouldn't have married him, therefore she was an illegitimate queen, therefore it authorized a divorce. Anyway, the argument went round and round and round and round. Thomas Cranmer became the Archbishop of Canterbury, authorized the king's divorce, 
So, when the Queen died, or when Thomas, sorry, when King Henry VIII died, he was succeeded by Edward VI, who was the boy king from the age of 9 to 15. He died, and then we had the nine-day queen, Lady Jane Grey, and then it was the first daughter's, sorry, the first wife's daughter, who was Mary, bloody Queen Mary. She became the king and she, queen. She remembered that Thomas Cramner had been the one who authorized the divorce of her mother, and she had a vendetta against this guy. So one of the things that she wanted to do straight away was see him put to prison. But the theological issue, that's kind of the, um, the, personal, um, the personal subplot to the story. The theological issue. What was the theological issue that Thomas Cranmer, that Thomas Cranmer stood for? Like, why did he die? As Adventists, we think at the end of time, what's going to be the issue for Adventists? Sabbath Sunday. Well, why did Thomas Cranmer die? What was the issue back then? What was the issue? It was life and death. The issue was this, transubstantiation or communion. That was the life and death issue. Now today, we say, we would probably say, how can that be a life or death issue? This is the spot where they were burned to death. You see that, that, that cross on the ground, the black cross with the white around it? That's the exact spot they believe on the ground where Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake in 1555 and then 1556. Now, the issue was transubstantiation. Now, let me just share with you a little bit Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer, this is an, uh, to me this is fascinating. I just really found this out not so long ago as I was preparing for this seminar. Hugh Latimer was a bishop in England, and he was a well-known preacher. And... When Queen Mary became queen, she, said she started rounding up all the Protestants, all the Protestant bishops, and systematically killing them. Hugh Latimer was one of them. Now, this is the thing. He was given six weeks from, from when, I think, she became queen, when a lot of the Protestant leaders, William Tin, no, I mean not William, there was other ones that fled the country. John Knox was one of them. They fled the country. A lot of them went to Geneva, which was a haven for Protestants. Hugh Latimer could have fled the country. He had six weeks to leave. He said, no, I'm not, I'm not fleeing the country. To me, it's fascinating. He stays. A lot of Protestant leaders fled. He said, no, I'm going to stay. I'm not leaving. Then, when the council summoned him, the guy's name was called John Careless. I don't know who has a last name, Careless, but anyway, his name was John Careless. He heard that he was about to be summoned by the council. So John Careless went to see Latimer and said, they're going to summon you. Get away. He's like, nah, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Many of us would have probably fled, right? This is the messenger from the Lord, John Careless. <laughs> He's told me to leave and I'll leave. When the queen's officer came to him, he didn't even arrest him or put him in whatever and, and drag him away. The queen's officer merely came to him and said, here's your summons. And then the queen's officer left. So, okay. Is the Lord letting him live? The summons said he had to appear in London on the 13th of September, 1554. It's almost like bloody Queen Mary was trying to give him every opportunity to flee. Like, there's some she wanted to kill, but she, it almost looks by, when you look at that, she didn't want to kill the guy. Almost looks like that. In a six-week delay, someone tells him about it, then the queen's officer just says, oh, can you appear on this date? I mean, which Protestant leader appears on the date of his execution of his own free will. And then he showed up on the 13th of September. And he was very specific. He said, no. Number one, he said, I'm not fleeing. Number two, he said, I'm not going to run the country. I'm not going to run from the country. He said, I, I will show up on the date that the queen has summoned me because I am going to answer theologically for the reasons that she's told I am in heresy. And I appreciate the stand he made because he could have fled. Today, you can go visit Oxford. That picture there shows the the monument that was built in Oxford in 1841, commemorating the stand of what are called the Oxford Martyrs. He said, no, I'll read this quote here. It was a magnificently courageous recognition of the fact that where great issues are involved, there comes a time when the bravest men cannot give ground. He's like, no, there is a bigger issue at stake than just my temporal life. 
even though I've had the opportunity to escape, to leave, to flee the country. He's like, no, I'm going to stand my ground and I'm going to defend the issue that, I'm, that I believe in, even if it's at the cost of my life. The Oxford Martyrs, 1855 and 1556, were Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latham, and Thomas Cramner. And the main issue was transubstantiation. What's transubstantiation, anyone? Mm-hmm. Correct. So it's the belief, as, as mentioned, that when the priest says the prayer over the bread at communion, that bread now becomes the literal, literal body of Jesus. The wine becomes the literal blood of Jesus, and you are drinking his literal blood. That's the belief. That's the Catholic belief. And, and Hugh Latimer, amongst others, said, no, we do not believe in this. And they, 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 they argued against it. Now, there were different beliefs at the time. And this is kind of a, maybe a little bit of a summary of what some of the beliefs were. You had um, the Catholics who believed in transubstantiation. That was that the bread and the wine completely changed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. Catholic belief, right? The Reformed belief, which John Calvin came up with, was slightly different. It's kind of called receptionism, I'm not quite sure why. And they say Christ is not present literally, but he's spiritually present. It's kind of like a, I don't know, cross between the two. By faith you can receive the actual, so he didn't say it's the actual body, but spiritually you can receive the actual body. So it's kind of, I don't know, a bit of a, a fusion. The Lutheran view is called, sometimes called consubstantiation. And that's where they say Christ's body and bread are present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Not quite sure what that means, how, how exactly it's different. Um, and they use the illustration, the Lutherans, where you have an iron rod in a fire. The iron is distinct, the fire is distinct, yet both are united together. This was Martin Luther's view. Now, in my opinion, these, the, neither of them is accurate, amen? Then you had Zwingli, and, and this is Luther, Zwingli is more called memorialism, which is, it's no physical or spiritual presence of Christ in the bread and wine. The service is a remembrance of Christ. You know, this issue is the issue that split Luther and Zwingli. They met and discussed this. I forget the name. Is it Magdeburg, where they met and discussed this? And Luther would not give ground, and Zwingli would not give ground, and that caused a division between Luther and Zwingli that was, I believe, in the long run, very, very damaging for Protestantism as a whole, where you had this movement that now started to fragment. Protestantism started to fragment over this issue. Um, where do Adventists stand? We're along this line. We believe that when you have the bread, is it literal? It's symbolic. The bread is just a symbol of the body. The wine is a symbol of the blood. And we do it in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Um, Now today, we don't die over this issue. But in the 1600s, 1500s, people died on this issue. Uh, Hugh Latimer, he he was asked the question, where is the Lord? He said, he's in heaven. (laughs) He had a little bit of humor. When you read um, Hugh Latimer's sermons, he had a kind of a humor about him uh, as he wrote. Where is the Lord? He is in heaven. Whence he went at the resurrection. The change at communion is in the heart of the belie- sorry, is in the heart of the believer, not in the bread. And that's very much what we believe as Adventists today, that at communion, you know, that the change comes in your heart as opposed to in something else. If you get a chance to go to Oxford, it's right outside Balliol College. And it's fat it's not fascinating, it's kind of sad. You go there and stand on the side. And you watch cars drive over this place. I'm not saying it's a sacred spot and they shouldn't go, but you watch bicycles go and people walk. And people have no idea, no understanding or no idea. Like I'm saying, I'm not saying it's a sacred spot you can't walk on. I've taken pictures of, you know, standing right on top of it. But it's sometimes sad to realize that these stands that people made, people today have little understanding of them. You know, as Adventists today, some of the stands that we will have to make may not be transubstantiation or communion. That battle has been fought. 
Uh, but I believe the stands that we'll have to take in the times that are ahead will include things such as the Sabbath versus Sunday. That's going to be an issue that we as Adventists will have to stand for. Now, some people may say, well, that's not a big deal. One day in seven, it doesn't matter which one you keep. Whereas we as Adventists have a different understanding, both of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is not just a day of rest, but the Sabbath has prophetic significance at the end of time. We see the end time, the end time prophetic understanding links the Sabbath with the seal of God. Now, so, yeah, because some people, they will say, um, some modern Adventists argue that this understanding that the Adventists have on the Sabbath being an end time issue is, is framed or clouded by the Adventists stand in the 1880s. What happened in the 1880s? Well, in the 1880s, in Congress, here in the United States of America, they were going to pass a Sunday law, the Blair Bill. They were going to pass a Sunday law. So the Adventists went to Congress, A.T. Jones, and argued against the passing of a Sunday law. Now, some modern Adventists, I would call them, say that the Adventist understanding on the Sabbath is only clouded by that history. Like, and that our stance today is out of touch with the current times, and it was only a historic stance that is not really prophetically true. I would say that's incorrect, because the end-time prophetic understanding of the linking of the Sabbath with the seal of God was first brought together by Joseph Bates in the 1840s. And the uniqueness of Adventism is the understanding of the Sabbath in the context of the sanctuary or the apocalyptic end-time scenario, that we understand the Sabbath is not just a day of rest, but something more important than that. A man called Joseph, or sorry, Thomas Tillam, was a Seventh-day Baptist in the 1600s. And he wrote a tract in 1657 on the Sabbath called the Seventh-day Sabbath Sought Out and Celebrated, where he identified God's law and the Sabbath as being at the heart of the final conflict. So even in the 1600s, you had a Baptist understanding the Sabbath in the same eschatological importance that we as Seventh-day Adventists understand. The SCA interpretation of final events predates, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, what some call a contextual understanding of Revelation based on the 1880s when the Sunday law was introduced into Congress in 1888. You think the Sabbath will be an issue at the end of time? Where do you think Congress is going to go on these issues? I'm not an expert on religious liberty in these things, but I was reading a book that brought out this point that, you know, we talk about, is America going to pass a Sunday law? Well, in 1961... McGowan versus Maryland, the court ruled that Sunday closing laws have a secular purpose so they do not violate the, co the Constitution. Like, they've already voted or they've already had a case that established that it would be okay. So it doesn't really matter today so much, you know, what's the ratio of Catholics to Protestants or whatever on the Supreme Court. They've already got historic precedent of two cases. And in the same year, in 1961, Braunfield versus Brown ruled that Sunday closing laws do not violate the religious freedom of Jewish shopkeepers, even though it would handicap them in the marketplace because it would have to be closed on two days. So if Congress has already ruled that this issue would kind of be okay, it lays the ground for us today being in trouble. Is the issue just Sabbath for us to stand for, or is it bigger than that? You know, history has some tough lessons, and it's important to look at the lessons of the past. And when you look at the history of the Adventist church in Germany in World War II, it doesn't make very good reading. They stood for the Sabbath at the peril of a lot of things. And it almost shows you where if you stand just for the Sabbath, but you fail to see the principles for which the Sabbath stands, it can put us in a bad place. We defend the principle or the freedom behind the Sabbath more than just the ability for us to go to church on one day. And the history of the Adventist church in Nazi Germany doesn't make very good 
reading. Today, there is an unpopular religious minority. Maybe this is controversial, I don't know. Who've been targeted. They've had their holy books confiscated, their religious rituals disrupted, and some of their members jailed in violation of basic due process and civil rights. And some people say, many Christians say, well, they're not Christian. Their religion's false. They don't have a holy book like we have, so it's okay if their constitutional rights are violated. Some of them are held in prison and haven't had a trial for 10 years in the land of the free and the home of the brave. But it's justified because they're terrorists. Now, it's very easy, you know, it's very easy for us to kind of stand aside and just be like, well, that's not us. And because it's not us, who cares? That same way society thinks can just be taken from one minority group and just lift it, next group. You know, the way that they've kind of divided Islam up into the peaceful, loving majority and the minority extremism. So you've got them, you know, everyone's peaceful. The majority is peaceful. It's just the small minority that's not, and that's the problem. It's so easy for that same dividing of a particular subculture to just take that same dividing they've done to that group and do it to another group and do it to another group. And it will be so easy to do that to, to us. Well, they're peaceful, loving people. It's just a minority that's legalistic and whatever, whatever, whatever. That's the problem. I think we have to sometimes see the bigger issues at play. And laws meant to control one group of people in society can establish a precedent for everyone who lives in that society. And we as a people need to look at the issues that underlie the Sabbath and God's law and see how this plays out in the wider spectrum. Otherwise, our view of the Sabbath could be too narrow. What issues are we going to have to stand for? You know, another issue I believe that as God's church, you know, transubstantiation, the Bible and the language of the common people was in the past. But I think increasingly an issue for Adventists or Christians to even make a stand on today is going to be this issue there, the marriage and the family. I mean, right now, this is like the topic in America. Transgenderism, male, female, this, that, the other. Can you go to this bathroom or that bathroom? Or which one can you go to? Are people born this way? Are they not born that way? Do you state your gender at birth or do, do you do it later on? Can these two marry? Can these two marry? Or what about those two? These are kind of the issues. And in some ways, I don't know about you. In 19, no, sorry, 2015, the United States Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was constitutionally protected right. You know, in California, New Jersey, Oregon, and D.C., it's illegal for counselors to use what they call conversion therapy. Let's say you're a counselor, and a young person comes to you and says, I'm having these tendencies or these feelings, and I don't like them. Can you help me combat them? It's illegal for a counselor in at least those states to counsel them on how to overcome those temptations. It's legal. Now, in many ways, I think as Adventists, we're kind of looking at the Sabbath Sunday issue, and I believe that is a prophetic issue that's going to be there. But I think in some ways, there are going to be other issues that are related to the Ten Commandments as well that we may have to make a stand on that maybe we've been a little bit too quiet on. As a church, you could maybe argue we've released some statements affirming the biblical view. Yet in some ways, and maybe this is my opinion, maybe yours is different, overall as a church, we've been quite quiet on the issue, avoiding getting involved too much. You know, the Reformation helped the sexual revolution. How? Martin Luther married Catherine Van Bora. She was an escaped nun. It's a fascinating story. Martin Luther helped her escape from prison. She was a nun. Something like in a, in, in a, in a wagon or in a beer barrel, they escaped from prison, and then he married her one way to find a wife. Calvin got married as well. He married a, a widower. Um, she had a few children. He lived a happy marriage. They went against the grain. They challenged the, or rejected the idea that celibacy was a superior form of spirituality. That's the belief. You know, if you're celibate, you're more spiritual than someone who's not celibate. And they challenged that idea. 
The Puritans, you mean some, everyone thinks they're all stiff, stiff, you know, stiff upper lip and whatever, whatever. But the Puritans continued that. Even though they were very rigid with church discipline and other things, the Puritans continued this and taught that the Bible upheld romantic love and sex engaged for pleasure, not just for procreation. In fact, Puritans, if you're a Puritan member in a church, you could be disciplined by the church. if you are only believing in sex for procreation as opposed to pleasure. Like if you were withholding yourself from your spouse, it was grounds for church discipline. So the Puritans weren't so Puritan, <laughs> as we would sometimes think. So for Adventists, marriage and the Sabbath had their origin. We look at both these things. Then Sabbath and the marriage had their origin, twin institutions for the glory of God, for the benefit of humanity. Then as the Creator joined the hands of the holy pair in wedlock, saying, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one, he enunciated the law of marriage for all the children of Adam to the close of time. Now, how do you think the marriage might play at the end of time? And are there prophetic references to marriage in the book of Revelation, yes or no? In some ways, you could argue there's more references or allusions to marriage in Revelation than there are even to other things, which gives us maybe an indication that it might be a big issue that we may have to stand for as a church, increasingly, the view that a man should marry one woman may be seen as being archaic. Notice these imagery here. In Revelation 14, verse um, 7, it talks about how the first angel, um, the first angel, it uses these words, the fountains of waters. And it's interesting imagery for John to use in Revelation chapter 14. Why? Because fountains of waters, the word fountains of waters, is the word in the Hebrew, pege, which is the same in the Septuagint, as going back, um, it's the same as the Septuagint to what is used in Genesis 7 verse 11 when it says the fountains of the waters were unleashed on the world. Interesting that in Revelation 14, he uses the same phrase as was used in Genesis 7 and one of the reasons for the flood was what? An abuse of the marriage institution. Interesting connection the second angel has marriage imagery as well. It talks about fornication, literal fornication, symbolic or historical or, or symbolic fornication as well. And notice about the third angel. The third angel says the beast and his image. The beast and his image is a counterfeit of the image of God. And the image of God, according to Genesis 1 verse 27, you have the image of God in the union of man and woman. So maybe the beast and his image is also another application of that, where it's a subversion of the marriage. The medieval church subjugated women. It made wedded life an inferior state. It led to the view of God that was authoritarian, hierarchical, and oppressive. That was the medieval church. But today our battle is not so much the medieval church, it's modern secularism, which is distorting God's image today by denying the importance of gender. Will these be issues that the church has to grapple with or stand on? Notice here, similar imagery. In Revelation 14, verse 10, the punishment for those that have the mark of the beast is that fire and brimstone will come on them. Fire and brimstone is used in Genesis nineteen twenty-four as the punishment for Sodom and Gomorrah, which had abused the marriage thing, rampant homosexuality, etc. Jude 7, it uses the same words, fire and brimstone. The same word used in Revelation 14, verse 10, is the same as is used in Genesis 19, verse 24, per and theon. Outside of Revelation, half the uses of this word have to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. So, it's interesting that the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, and the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, are the only two commandments that have affirmative behavior, remember and honor. The other commandments are thou shalt not. These ones call for affirmative behavior. Marriage, 
and the Sabbath. And I think those two, these two commandments are going to be issues that we will have to grapple or stand with. Some people ask the question though, and as Adventists today, if we call for law, if we call that laws should not be there on the Sabbath, how can we then call for laws on marriage? You understand the question? If we say no laws on the Sabbath, how can we say laws on marriage? Is that a contradiction of terms? I would say no, it's not a contradiction. And why is it not a contradiction? It's not a contradiction because the fifth commandment, excuse me, is on the second table. The first table of commandments is commandments one to four. It deals with our relationship with God. The second table of commandments is commandments five to ten. It deals with our relationship with fellow human beings. The first table deals with our relationship to God, divine law. Second table, human law. We as Christians or Adventists should believe that it's okay for the state to enforce the second table, but not the first. Nature teaches that to survive and thrive, civil societies need a structure of honesty, integrity, and respect for life and property. Based on nature and human experience, the traditional family structure is one of the most basic and common values. Civil morality. Now, this is something interesting. I think, I think we as a church have lost this. And what do, I, what do I mean? Our early pioneers of the Adventist church got involved in the temperance movement. Ellen White spoke to our largest audiences the largest audiences Ellen White spoke to were non-Adventist audiences when she spoke about the temperance movement. All of our early pioneers, and when I say all, I mean every single one of the early pioneers were all, bar none, abolitionists. What did I, what did I mean by that? They all believed in the abolition of slavery and they wrote aggressively and actively to that, to that um, end. So much so that the Adventist Review and Herald, the flagship journal of the Adventist church, was banned in the southern states because it was seen as an abolitionist magazine. Now I think as a church we've lost that edge in some ways. John Byington, the first GC president, was a member or part, whatever you call it, it wasn't a signed up organization, but he used his farm on the Underground Railroad. Ellen White herself said, you know there was a law in 1850? that if an escaped slave came to the north, you had to return the escaped slave back to his master. Ellen White said, the law requiring us to return an escaped slave to his master, we are not to obey. She said, break that law. So early Adventists, they saw the difference between what were civil morality issues that we could get involved in and what were not. The abolition of slavery, the temperance movement, those were all issues that our early pioneers got into. Now, some people will say that marriage is, you know, we shouldn't be legislating it, but it could be argued that marriage isn't even a Christian or Jewish institution as it existed prior to Judaism. It existed outside of these cultures as well. Now, to invoke a civil law on behalf of morality, it must be shown that there are public consequences to morality. I know this is not so much Reformation history, but I'm just covering it because I think it has a relevance to us today. Let me share with you some statistics as to why I think as Adventists, we should make a stand on not just the Sabbath, but other issues of relevance as well. Young adult children of lesbian parents are 11 times as more likely to have been sexually abused by a parent or another adult than heterosexual. The point I'm making is, if we as Adventists or Christians argue that we can enforce by law certain issues of civil morality because they come from the second table of the law, we have to show that there's a civil consequence to society that justifies them being legislated. Is there a civil consequence to society when commandment number five is broken down? I think there is a civil consequence to society. And we're only just, we won't see its full reality until a few years' time. Children of lesbian and gay men are three times more likely to have been forced to have sex against their will. Children raised by gays and lesbians reported with greater levels of depression, lower levels of happiness, and physical health, and 30 to 40% more likely to get arrested. But there's another study. You could say, well, these are kind of, well, some of them are subject, objective, some of them you could say are subjective. 
in Canada, the National Census of Canada. So this is census statistics. These are hard, cold facts. Children of gay and lesbian were 69% less likely to graduate from high school than children of opposite sex parents. Just like, that's just graduating from high school. There's no like, that's just a fact. Lesbian household was 60%, daughters of lesbians 45%, daughters of gay parents 15%. So the question, should we be passive or silent on the issue? Well, you've got to grapple with that yourself. And where you stand. I would argue that we shouldn't be passive. Let me share with you, before we close, something that I think helps us delineate certain things in the Adventist church and when we look at the past. A hill to die on, what do you stand on? You know, in our church, we have, I believe, four levels of teachings. You have doctrines, you have teachings, you have majority, majority, view, majority minority views, and individual positions. What do I mean? You could divide everything we stand for a church under one of these things. Let me explain. What's a doctrine? A doctrine is a fundamental belief. We call them landmarks. We call them pillars. They define a person as a Seventh-day Adventist. They have been brought together by careful study, church-wide consensus. They are formed and settled sometimes over a long period. For example, our teaching on the Sabbath as a church took us about a good 10 years to settle on. 1847 to at least 1857 until we settled on the Sabbath being kept from sunset to sunset. It took us about 10 years. The sanctuary, you could say, was what, 1830-something to about 1845? Now, these are landmark pillars. The Holy Spirit, I know that's a big thing these days, the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, if you look at it historically, it took us about 70 years until we settled on our view that we have as a church on this Holy Spirit. Like it wasn't until 1945 that we actually put something in print as a church, as an official statement. Because there was so much variance of, of view before that. And that's why you can find all of these, some pioneers saying wacky things from 1870 or 1860. Because there was a huge diversity of opinion back then. But it was kind of settled by the mid-1900s. Now, this is doctrines. These are the type of things that you need to believe to be an Adventist. And these are the things I believe that we should kind of make a stand on. If you go to Clifford Jones or you heard Clifford Jones, he, I'm not Clifford Jones, I'm saying Clifford Goldstein. He'll say, if you don't believe in creation, I heard him say this at GYC a couple of years back, if you don't believe in creation, then you cannot be a Seventh-day Adventist. I would agree. I don't see how you can be a Seventh-day Adventist and not believe in creation. To me, it doesn't go. Like, you have, like, that's a foundational, fundamental pillar. What about a teaching? So you got doctrine, teaching. What's a teaching? Teachings have a lower status. They are beliefs or lifestyle issues that the church has adopted that we do not see as a test of faith. They represent what SDAs hold to be true, for the most part. Some of these things you could say argue, not all of them. Some of them we may glean from the writings of Ellen White more than the Bible. The doctrines all come from the Bible, unmistakably. Let me give you an example. Diet. What's the Adventist doctrine on diet that you have to agree to when you get baptized? clean and unclean, isn't it? That's what we can prove biblically. But what do we hold as a teaching as a church? Do we generally teach that we should be vegetarian, yes or no? Yes. That is it. Yeah, we do. <laughs> it, can, it can depend on where you are in the planet, but it is something we still hold as a denomination to be best practice. But we fall short of making it a test of faith but we do hold it to be a teaching, really. Other things that would come into this area, you would probably say, are things like, um, let me see. Um, certain beliefs, or even we would call them theological views, 
that may not be a doctrine, but they're still what we hold. Potentially our view on church and state, it's not a doctrine of the church, but it's still something we still teach. What comes next? Majority minority views. The positions or belief held by larger groups of Adventists that are not recognized as doctrines or teachings, they often include ideas and not core faith ideas. And these can vary where you are in the world. There's some places where you go in the world where you cannot mention the word Christmas, you cannot celebrate Christmas, you cannot even talk about Jesus being born, you cannot even sing Christmas carols in December because it's pagan. And I've had instances where it's been a huge issue in different places. And other places you go, it's no problem. They have a Christmas tree in church. Now, which way? I mean, our church doesn't have an official doctrine on Christmas. It kind of varies where you go. Yes, Ellen White has given some statements on Christmas. But if you have a strong belief that Christmas is pagan, I can tell you, you can give them all the Ellen White course. It means absolutely nothing. They'll just ignore it. No, it's pagan. But Ellen White's doesn't matter. I'm going with the Bible on this one. And people pick and choose what they want based on whatever. Now that's just one example, but other issues, you know, there can, can, could be other dietary things. Where there may be even more finite area of diet than just vegetarianism. But people make that a huge issue. And then you have, even lower down than that, what I would say are individual opinions. I mean, I've met people that argued till they were blue in the face, and I don't know whether it's individual positions or minority views, that all women in church have to wear a hat. Now, to me, that's a non-issue. I really don't care if you wear a hat or don't wear a hat. And I certainly don't believe the latter rain falling on the church is dependent on all the females in here wearing a hat. But some people, you'll talk to them, they'll have all the quotes printed and all the this and this. They almost make a salvific view of something that has no real end-time apocalyptic significance. As a people, I think we need to learn to delineate what are the core fundamental issues that make us a Seventh-day Adventist in this time, what may be a teaching that we hold to be generally true, but we may not impose it with the same force as a doctrine, and what are some of the positions that we may just hold more ourselves, Or may just be localized to our particular region or subculture of Adventism? And what's just my own view? And learn where we make the stand. Some of the issues we have in the local churches we represent are where people are making the issues that are like number four, number three, or number two, and defending them with the intensity of it being a doctrinal position. Let's defend our church doctrines at the cost of, be it our life, but not other issues. Amen? You know, Ellen White, she was writing, you know, 1888, and this is kind of not what I was going to talk about. I'll just mention it very quickly before we close. In 1888, what was the issue? Righteousness by faith, but what was the issue? Which, which Bible passages were they using? And if you've studied this before, you'll know. They were using Galatians chapter 3, the law of Galatians. And the, 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 the new view guys were saying the law of Galatians is the Ten Commandments. And the old view guys were saying the law of Galatians is a ceremonial law. And there was a big law. There was a big argument. Is the law in Galatians a ceremonial law or is it the Ten Commandments? And they argued this law with the intensity of a doctrine. Ellen White later said, the law of Galatians is not a major issue. Please stop arguing about it. Today, we don't discuss this. It would be down in majority-minority views somewhere down there. But in 1888, it was argued with the intensity as if it was a doctrine. Because the old guys thought that this new view was going to undermine the doctrine of the Sabbath. And so they argued it like it was a doctrine. Ellen White has quotes where she says, listen guys, the law in Galatians is not a major issue. Today, we, put it, we don't even talk about it. But back then, my goodness, the church almost split over this thing. Let's know what makes us Adventist, amen? And let's know, through the divine guidance God gives us, through the impressions of the Holy Spirit, what really is a hill worth dying on and what is not. The reformers give us a legacy of standing for principle. Hugh Latimer.
could have fled, but stayed and died over a key biblical issue. Let us know what we stand for, and if we have to make a stand, be it with our life, that we would do so, knowing that it's something worth dying for, and it's not just something frivolous. Let's bow our heads for, as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the legacy of these men and women in the past. May their lives and stories inspire us to live with integrity and firmness of conviction today. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our next presentation is entitled The Foundation of All Freedoms. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.